If you're a college football fan, this has been a great weekend. Uh, and as you may know, I am a college football fan. And I have prayed and uh, will seek the Lord's grace to not use too many sports analogies this fall. That's particularly challenging for me because my team, the West Virginia University Mountaineers, is actually really good this year, as evidenced by the 4110 drumming of the SEC's University of Tennessee yesterday. You may have heard about the uh, bet that I made. It involved you to a degree, so I probably should have shared it with you. My friend of a quarter century who is a sojourn pastor by the name of Paul Gilbert, and uh, he's at Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Paul is a lifelong Tennessee volunteer fan, and we bet on the game that the loser of the contest would have to wear the winner's home team logoed polo shirt to preach in the following Sunday. Which means that if West Virginia had lost yesterday, he was going to send me this very bright orange University of Tennessee shirt that I would have had to have wear or worn. Um, uh, as an act of faith and really ultimate trash talk, I sent him his WVU shirt two weeks ago. So, <laughs> going to a sporting contest is a unique experience compared to other group social activities for a number of reasons, not the least of which is uh, the commitment to fashion wear that you are, are expected to make. Uh, you're supposed to dress like everybody else. If you don't believe that's true, uh, put on that San Francisco Giants t-shirt and go sit in the outfield bleachers at Dodger Stadium and see how that works out for you. Uh, this is the pressure that others feel when they visit an opposing team's location. Uh, and to a greater or lesser degree, some of these places will make uh, opposing team's fans feel a little insecure. Uh, wearing the colors of another team would not be done unless under compulsion. Uh, this is certainly true for the dyed-in-the-wool college football fan like my friend Paul um, his compliance next Sunday, I assure you, isn't born out of a love for my alma mater or any sense of needing to conform with my crowd. It's completely out of moral obligation. And I will hold him accountable and show that picture in two weeks. Today, we continue looking intently into what James in James 1.25 says is the law of freedom hoping, as he encouraged us to, to not forget what we see, to not forget what we learn, but actually apply that. Practically, this is why we are to study the scriptures, not just on Sunday as a church, but you throughout the course of the week as you open the scriptures to feed your soul. The primary thing you should be looking to do is to discover more of the character of Jesus so that you can grow in your love for him and begin to imitate his love for others. Uh, imitating Jesus, it's a big part of the Christian experience. Uh, here's a great t-shirt that captures my heart about imitating Jesus. Uh, I saw it this past week. Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. This is quality, quality apparel wear. And, and we're looking actually at a deeper level than just imitating his lifestyle as 
like with regards to when he slept and when he did his devotional time or anything like that. We're, we're really speaking more specifically to the heart of Christ and, and what it is that he's trying to do with his life. What are the end goals? We even shared this morning that the answer to our 34th week question New City Catechism, must we still do good works and obey God's Word? And the answer is yes, because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renewed us by His Spirit, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits, and by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. As we studied John 10 last week, Jesus had left Judea under a bit of pressure, uh, under the threat of death. Now, he didn't do so in, with cowardice. He did this because, as he even mentions in this week's passage a little bit, uh, it wasn't his time. His time had not come. When he exited Judea and came to the other side of the Jordan, what he began to experience was a fruitfulness in ministry. People began to believe, certainly in greater numbers than they did at the festival he was at previous. It was during that time of great ministry fruitfulness that he got the bad news. A friend of his was gravely ill. Read in John 11, verses 1 through 3, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Uh, a quick spoiler alert, first of two this morning. Um, while this family from Bethany had a previous relationship with Jesus that you can read about in the scriptures, John is making mention here of something that's going to happen in the next chapter, uh, an event where one of the sisters of Lazarus is going to really prepare Jesus for his burial. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. John would have included this, likely because either he knew his readers were going to be reading this gospel multiple times, or he assumed they knew of Mary, because as the gospels were written in history, the synoptic gospels preceded John's gospel. And so there is some sense historically that people would have heard the story of Mary doing this. Now, critics of the New Testament, those who would say, and spend most of their life trying to save you from the fools who teach this stuff as if it's actually God's Word. I say that facetiously. These critics would see this mention of Mary um, and, the, and the, what she had done and what will, she will do in chapter 12 as evidence of something that was added later, um, which parallels their criticism that none of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, have this narrative about a man from Bethany dying and come, being brought back to life. And oh yeah, here's your second spoiler. Uh, Lazarus won't stay dead long. All right, and we'll talk about that next week as well. We'll cover the metaphoric and ministerial purposes of Jesus doing this great miracle in his life, and they are many. It is evident from our section of Scripture today that this move back into Judea was troubling to his disciples and demonstrative of some courage on Jesus' part. In verses 7 and 8, it says, let's go to Judea again. 
And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. You are a glutton for punishment. Why? Why are we going back? They felt the fear. They felt the danger. This is the experience if we're going to pray for our friends who are doing ministry in in closed countries, countries that are closed off to the gospel, hostile to the gospel. This is their experience. You see in these verses, Jesus' courage to obey the Father. It's a courage born of his intimacy with God. It's an intimacy that we're all going to need to know. If we're going to obey the Lord, if we're going to imitate Him, if we're even going to have the disposition to follow Him in the first place. And it really gives us the first of three things Jesus does, three actions of Christ that we can worship Him for and really emulate in our own lives. Here's the first one. Jesus pursued loving relationships, not just tools for his glory. Uh, For people who are passionate about the glory of God, and that's a good thing, and people who are very precise theologically, which is also a good thing, it's really important to remember that God will be glorified through the means of people knowing Him relationally. His love for us is what produces hearts that respond in willing obedience, desirous obedience. But they don't get started unless loving relationships precede them. And you see in these verses here, verses 3 through 5, almost a, a sandwich of sorts. You've got love and love, and in between them you've got an, an, an emphasis on the glory of God. The sisters said to him in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. This is something we teach the kids to sing. There's a zoo of them in the other room this morning. Almost as many kids in there as there are adults in here. And they're going to learn about the love of Jesus. That's what we teach kids. And the challenge for us as adults is that becomes sort of like, yeah, of course, Jesus loves them. Let's move on. Uh, This is no small thing. Uh, It is not a duh moment. Uh, This text implies something of a unique affection that Jesus had for this family and for his children. See, when John records the sisters' request for him to come, their, their statement that, Lord, he whom you love is ill, he uses the word phileo, the Greek word for love. The Greek word is phileo. He says the, the, the ladies, his sisters, would have said, you have this type of love for Lazarus. In the fifth verse, John records Jesus' love. Jesus saying that he, or John saying that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus with the word agape, which is a a stronger word. Phileo is the Greek word that implies a deep feeling for someone, a brotherly love. Hence, the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. The relationships that Jesus had developed with 
Martha and Mary yielded a genuine personal connection and enjoyment and even an affection for their brother Lazarus. He, Jesus, apparently liked Lazarus. And so they said, this guy, you, you loved him. You enjoyed him. John says Jesus loved them all with an agape love. A love that describes a desire for a high placement in one's affections. It is the word for love that is used to describe the father's love for his only begotten son. It's not a a friendship love. Certainly there's that. But it's much deeper. Jesus desired to be with this family of friends. And this is the important emphasis that Christians zealous for the Lord need to keep as a counterbalance. God doesn't consider people as a means to an end. Jesus said He came to serve, not to be served. We serve because He's shown us an example and we love because He first loved us. People were not designed to become robots of worship. He's not faking His affection for us so that we'll become these people who praise Him like, uh, you know, like robots. He's saying, I I want you to genuinely know me and then I want to see worship come as a byproduct of that. Genuine worship is only born when somebody genuinely knows that they're valued through the pursuit of a deep and loving relationship. And this is the relationship that Jesus had with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it produced within them a desire to be with Jesus a desire to yield to Jesus, a desire to look to Jesus, and yes, as we'll see in John chapter 12, a desire to give their all for Jesus. Interestingly, it's Jesus' own relationship with the Father that enables him not to panic at the news of Lazarus' condition. Jesus is supremely confident that all things happen for the purpose of showing God's glory, which is to our benefit. Now, why would everything being for God's glory be to our benefit. Because as we see the majesty of God, the attributes of God, as we comprehend His holiness and His otherness, it makes the grace of the gospel that much more amazing. Who are we that this majestic Creator cares for us? Psalm 8, verses 1 through 5 records a very familiar refrain of worship. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Do you hear at the heart of this? This worship, what this production of, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. At the heart of that is, I can't believe you consider me something of worth someone you're paying attention to. This is the heart of God, the pursuit of loving relationships. Second thing we see in Jesus' example are that He lived for the Father's glory. 
This was what drove him. And thus he was able to bloom where he's planted. This is a phrase we use to describe the necessity to, regardless of how short a time frame you may be under at a workplace, at a living situation, wherever you might be, it's imperative that you think in terms of being as effective as you can wherever it is that you need to be. It says here in the passage in verses 5 through 7, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now we've covered comprehensively so far that Jesus has great affection for Lazarus. We're all clear on that, right? He loves this guy. Okay, quick pop quiz. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, A, he prayed and Lazarus was immediately healed. B, he hopped the first donkey and headed back to Judea. Or C, he kicked back and spent a couple more days where he was. Now, I don't know about you, the correct answer is C, as it is on the SAT all the time. But at the same time, I experience this sort of frustration all the time, where I'm like, didn't I make it clear, God, that I have a crisis here? And then God seems to have his own time frame for bringing about whatever change it is that I feel like I need. I became this week almost obsessed with two words in this passage. After this. So it says, when he heard, he stayed two days longer. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. What happened in that 48 hours that was so great that it was like, you know what? We're going to focus right here for the next 48. After this, we'll get on to this. I mean, I've had some great experiences in life, but I'm not the kind of person that compartmentalizes so well that if I found out a loved one was close to death, I wouldn't feel the need to stop whatever I was doing and get there. So something about this, whether it's my own ADD or living here in the land of no commitment, you know, Los Angeles, where the answer maybe or I'll try became the third way instead of yes or no in terms of commitment level. And that's because we want to do something, but we're not sure we want to commit to this because it might you know, make us miss something else that is cooler that will come along later. And it's hence kept us from actually being committed to anything. Jesus was consumed with doing his, his Father's will. He knew there was a crisis of life and death proportions in Judea, but he was able to remain where he was. He was literally able to say, I have to bloom where I'm planted. I have to make the most of this time. Whatever it was he was doing, he was going to trust the Father's will, which involved not running to pray for Lazarus' healing right away. Because as we'll see next week, there were some important symbolic and real-time reasons for Jesus needing to bring Lazarus back from the dead. What enabled Jesus to remain content as he moved through his life experiences, was his passion for the Father's glory. He considered his life to be for God's service and his interactions with others to be for their benefit. He effectively lived what he preached, namely that there's more joy in giving away his time and his talent and his treasures than it is keeping them for himself. Jesus was present in that moment. He resisted the tyranny of the urgent. 
He was above the tug of discontent. Whatever he was doing, he was invested there to the point that he didn't feel the need to reshuffle the schedule. So I ask you, as I've had to ask myself this week, can you bloom where you're planted? And this is a real challenge here in cities like Los Angeles. Uh, you may be saying, I'm only going to be here for a couple while, or I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Well, let me put it this way. If you were going to go join our friends, the Lowe's, on the mission field, and you said, I'll go for two years, you wouldn't wait around for two years and say, well, I'm going to go back to Los Angeles in two years. You'd get right to work. You'd find people who could support you and encourage you there. You'd say, I'm on a timer. I'm going to get to work. You would very quickly, I want to go, I'm going there to produce fruit, so I better get to digging and planting and watering and tending and let's make this thing, let's go. That would be your perspective. Well, let me challenge you. You are a missionary. Now, you may be a missionary to Pasadena, but you're a missionary, which means that today's the day to focus your energy on being everything you're supposed to be in this moment right here. Missionaries aren't just the people who go to Indonesia. That's tough mission work compared to Pasadena. But if you are here and you are a Christian, you are a missionary. There isn't a second wave, a second alternative. This is it. You may be at home with kids. That's harder than Indonesia as far as I'm concerned. But you're on the mission field, discipling those kids at home, raising them to know the Lord. I don't know where you are in your life, but Jesus has called you to make this moment your moment. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul wrote in verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Perhaps like so many Westerners, have been, currently are, I think all of us can empathize with this, you have to ask if you're a slave to thinking your life is about your pleasure and your future. Are you, like so many of us, prone to drifting off to sleep at night, fantasizing about winning the lottery and buying that house along the coast and treating yourself to all sorts of luxuries? See, if you've done that, then when difficulty comes, you're going to find, as I can testify to it, very difficult to adjust to Jesus' time frame and plan, which oftentimes involves challenges and difficulties. My biggest mistake, and when I make a list of mistakes, which is plural, almost all of them have been making choices without considering what was motivating me, without reflecting on whether or not it was the glory of God, the betterment of other people, His plan for my life. It was mostly because I was trying to get what I want, what I thought I needed. I failed to recognize what Jesus knew instinctively. There's more joy in giving our lives for God than there is in keeping our lives for ourselves. He lived for the Father's glory, and thus he was able to bloom where he was planted. The third thing we recognize about Jesus that I think we can appropriate into our lives is that Jesus is misunderstood by disciples, but still patient with them. And the applications here are myriad, <laughs> both in the way we deal with people 
and in the way we perceive God dealing with us. Do you imagine him patient and compassionate? After saying these things, it says in verse 11 through 13, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. This is not an uncommon experience in the New Testament, by the way, where people misunderstand some symbol or some metaphor that Jesus is using, a parable that Jesus is using, and they interpret it literally, and it sort of sends their life in a bit of a spin. In this case, the idea of sleep as a metaphor for death was uncommon in Jewish literature. It was fairly common in Greek literature and Hellenistic literature. It was, a, it was a big part of life. But in Jewish culture, it wasn't. So it's not surprising the disciples took the words of Jesus literally. And Jesus says, he's, a, he's asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And as anybody who's ever been sick before knows, the last thing in the world you do, if somebody who's sick finally gets to sleep, you let him sleep. That's a good thing. That's like the first step towards getting better. So his disciples are like, why in the world would we wake him up? Are you crazy? We can get frustrated when we don't understand God's plan for us or the circumstances we're contending with or the timing of his coming to fix our problems in life. And then we might actually begin to start making ourselves feel bad because we don't have the faith. We might find ourselves beating ourselves up emotionally and going, I just wish I was more mature. I wish I wish I had greater faith. I know I'm displeasing the Lord. And then depending on your denominational background, if you're a church-going person, you start doing a number of different things to make yourself feel worse. The idea that God is up there and He's so angry and disappointed with you. Perhaps you had a parent somewhere in your history who had zero patience, and zero compassion for failure. You were driven to succeed. You had to have everything under control. You had to do everything just right. It would drive you to the edge of neurosis. What's happened likely is that because of that in you, you're probably affecting other people that way whether you know it or not. See, Jesus wants to introduce a level of patience with us, us understanding his patience with us. And then he wants us to extend that same grace and patience to others. It is likely that we are going to misunderstand him, and he knows that. He desires us to be at rest in his plan and know that he loves us so that we can be at peace. He's patient with us, though, as he understands we're incapable, naturally speaking, of understanding exactly what he's talking about a lot of the time. We're comprehending what he's up to. And a lot of that's because the language of the New Testament, the, the commands of Jesus, the, the, the principles of his kingdom are counterintuitive to human nature. Giving produces more joy than keeping. Blessed are the poor, they will inherit the earth. Right away you're thinking, I'm not giving my stuff away and I'm not going to be a poor person by choice. Jesus says there's more joy in that. There's more joy in knowing that God's got those things and he's using them for him. You have to trust him to get there. We know that we resist the notion that suffering is good for us. Any of us who spent any time trying to produce a healthy physical being in which we would exactly exist, 
know that physical pain and suffering, at least temporary pain and suffering and discipline, are a necessary part of it, yet we all hate it. We hate suffering. Our whole advertising industry is built on alleviating our suffering. And not just the legitimate kind, like arthritis, where you need to pop your Aleve to relieve the pain. It's, it's, you know, you need relief from your world, so go buy a Jaguar. I mean, there's like a million reasons and a million things. You're just bombarded with advertisements that tell you, be discontent, be unhappy with what you have. If you're suffering and feeling bad, go buy something. That's what you need. That'll make you feel better. Suffering, though, is a key component of our growth as Christians. Paul said as much in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In verse 4 of today's text, we see Jesus re-emphasizing this. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. It's an amazing statement when you think about it. A friend of mine's died. I'm glad I wasn't there to save him. I mean, you go, really? You were, you're glad? And that's because Jesus can see the purpose of suffering. We'll get to it next week, but there's so many things that are beneficial to people, beneficial to their hearts, beneficial to the glory of God through His ability to take a difficult situation filled with sorrow and mourning and turn it into something beautiful. See, He understands our natural incapacity to see the world as He, do, as he does. And this is why it's so critical to comprehend today that He loves you. If you want to love God, if you want to get to a place where you actually desire to see Him work in your life and change you so that you will please Him, you need to have the kind of relationship that Lazarus, Martha, and Mary had. You need to know that His affection for you is high. It's father to the only begotten son kind of love. It's agape. He wants relationship with you. He loves you. If you don't know that, it's unlikely you'll be a person who yields and worship to him. It's unlikely that you'll build your life around him. You need to see Jesus as your tender Savior, a compassionate one. It was the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame he remembers we are dust. Do you have a father who's that patient with you? Do you have a relationship with God that is relationship first and then a desire on your part to please him second? See, if that's not the order in your life, then there's not going to be a lot of grace given to other people. There's not going to be a lot of prioritizing of their better over yours. It's going to be about what you need, what you want. It's going to be your agenda because you've had nobody in your life who's demonstrated any differently to you. Jesus is saying, I want you to see, my, I'm for you. I want you to be for others. This past summer, I was, uh, helped assist in a, the leadership of a seminar in our network for young pastors. It was a 
conference about preaching, and uh, it was held in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is historically um, a city I've not liked going too much, uh, is because it is the home of the University of Pittsburgh, the hated rival of West Virginia University. Uh, the Pitt-West Virginia rivalry dates back a century. Um, it is uh, two schools separated by 45 miles and an intense dislike for each other. It's a genuine disrespect. And uh, I have been a participant, a passionate participant in this rivalry for three decades plus. Uh, it goes without saying that you would have never caught me in anything with the words pit on them. Never. Then on April 18th of this year, something happened. Lance White, a friend of mine and a Christian brother who was a member of our church in Tallahassee, Florida, was named the head women's basketball coach at the University of Pittsburgh. I now faced a dilemma. So while in Pittsburgh this summer, I went to meet with my friend Lance. And here's what happens when you visit Pittsburgh and meet with your friend who is now the head women's basketball coach at your hated rival. I actually put a t-shirt on with the word Pitt on it. So I've decided that for, for women's basketball only, I will be a Pitt fan. I am on Coach White's team and will prioritize cheering for Pitt women's basketball, even over West Virginia, up until the time he leaves for another job. Well, my point in all this is this. Relationship with someone changes all the dynamics of life. Real relationship, loving, brotherly relationship changes everything. Jesus' blood is thicker than water. I, my friendship with him is more important than my stupid school. You know? And so you, you make the adjustment. That's what real relationship does. Relationship with God all the more. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he loves you, knowing intimacy with him, it changes priorities. It changes the nature of giving and receiving. It changes even the reason for sacrifice. It becomes a source of joy instead of obligation. And most of all, it brings glory to Jesus. Let us pray.